Good morning. My name is Gaylene. Throughout this series, we'll read each psalm as a call and response. So if you're able, please stand and recite Psalm 2 together. If you would please read the portions marked people and all. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us The one enthroned in the heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, Serve the Lord with fear and be humble before our God. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Serve the Lord with fear. Be humble before our God. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Those are those who take refuge in him. Serve the Lord with fear. Be humble before our God. The word of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask today that as we listen, that your Holy Spirit would open up our hearts and our minds, that we wouldn't just think differently, but we would direct our emotions and our hearts differently, that our wills themselves would find their place of surrender before you, and that you teach us to walk and to live under your reign. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. We're in a, se- a series on the Psalms, and this is the second week uh, of this series. And, and one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is they're not just a, a book that we study or that we analyze. It's a collection of songs and prayers that the people of God would sing and would pray to God. This is, goes back to the Old Testament. And, of course, the Psalms uh, were the prayer book of Israel, but actually they also became the prayer book of Christians. And so for uh, many, many years now, in fact, from early on, uh, Christians began to pray the Psalms as a way of talking to God, as a way of forming their language. And, you know, this is a little bit like parents teaching a baby how to speak, right? We, we, we know the metaphor of saying that when you come to faith, you are born again. And so if we stretch that metaphor a little bit further, we say, okay, we're born again. Now, how do we speak in this new life? And you don't just say to a kid, well, just say what's in your heart. No, you say 
say the words to them and you ask that baby to say those words back to you. And so you say ball and they say ball and you say close and they say cool. And you say, no, 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 I, I mean, you're close, you know, ball. And then you say it back and forth. And, and, and so you learn to speak by being spoken to. And the way that the, the whole book of Psalms is structured is, uh, is a little clue about this. The book of Psalms are organized in five books of their own. There's five books within the book of Psalms. And they're structured their way to kind of parallel in Jewish thought the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the Torah. And so in Jewish theology, the, the Torah, the first five books, are God speaking to us, his instructions, his wisdom, his commands. And then the Psalms are kind of how we answer God. And so Eugene Peterson has this uh, brilliant thin little book called Answering God. And it's about praying the Psalms and how the Psalms shape our language for this new life with God. But they don't just shape our language. They actually help us find the words when we don't know what to say. Uh, you know, very often you'll be in a conversation with a friend and they'll say, how are you? Uh, I'm good. No, but, but really, like, how are things? Yeah, I mean, it's fine, you know. And you're scrolling through your Rolodex of English words and you're thinking, I just don't know what else to say. And so sometimes, if we're like that with our friends, imagine that that, that might be the same way when you pray. And you sit down and you pray and say, dear God, I'm... I don't know. I don't know what to say. Uh, Lord, um, help. And so the Psalms, they kind of help you. They give you some words. They prime the pump. They say, well, are you feeling like you want to say to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're like, well, not today, but yesterday I was feeling that way. You know? And you might go through the list. And so the Psalms not only um, teach us the language for, for addressing God, but they actually give us language for articulating what's in our own hearts, things that we didn't realize were there. And so our subtitle on this series is Psalms, the Language of Our Faith. Now, as we, uh, Pastor Evan opened up the series last week, did a brilliant job on Psalm 1, talked to us about Psalm 1 as a wisdom psalm that sets the table, that kind of sets the groundwork for reading the rest of these prayers, for singing the rest of these songs. And today we're going to look at Psalm 2, and I want to say to you that actually Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 are like a double door into the house of God. And so the whole book of Psalms, if you imagine the whole book of Psalms as a congregation of worshipers singing and praying to God, Psalm 1 is one of the doorways, but there's a second door. It's a second double door. They're meant to kind of, they, they belong together. There's several scholars that say actually Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are a set. They belong together. They are a double intro into the book of Psalms. And let me show you something about this. Look at the way Psalm 1 opens. Psalm 1 opens with this word, blessed is the man or happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. And it goes on and says all of these things. The first word of the Psalm is the the Hebrew word for happy, for blessed, Ashra, the, the person that has it good. Another way of translating this word is simply to say, the one who's living the good life. This is what the good life looks like. And so Psalm 1 gives us a vision of an individual. And then Psalm 2, the closing verse of Psalm 2 says, all who take refuge in him are happy. And so if you look at it, the first word and the last word, the first word of Psalm 1 and the last word of Psalm 2 are the same word, the word blessed or the word happy as a way of saying, before we get any further on this pilgrimage, I want you to know that the, the double doors that enter us into this pilgrimage have to do with these two Psalms. Psalm 1 is about the individual. It focuses on the, the individual's life. Psalm 2 kind of 
pans out and focuses on the world. It, 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 it zooms out and says, what is going on in the world? Or if you'd like, Psalm 1 is about God's ways and Psalm 2 is about God's reign. And both things are meant to be held together. Now, we have four kids, and uh, our oldest is almost 13, which is scary to think about, that our old, we're about to have a teenager in the house. It's pretty nuts. And then our, our youngest is five, and uh, so our oldest, you know, Sophia is old enough now that we can kind of disappear for a few hours. Holly and I can go out for a bit, and she's okay to, to kind of, you know, look, look after things, and, and she is accepting some babysitting jobs from time to time. And so, so all of that is wonderful and great. But I will say that e, her leadership at this moment is put to the test by her own siblings. And so there's, there's nothing like her three younger siblings saying, we don't really think you are in charge, you know? And especially young Jane, if you know Jane at all, Jane is very convinced to tell the whole world that, that she is really in charge, you know? And so sometimes Holly and I will go away, you know, on, on a you know, quick little uh, errand somewhere. We'll say, hey, babe, you want to go on a date? Like maybe Starbucks and then Target? Maybe the Starbucks in Target, you know? It's just amazing what you can do with, when you have a uh, four kids in your life. Uh, and, and we come back and we're like, hey, what happened here? You know, like what happened to the house? I thought that you guys were going to get work done or clean up. And Sophia will be like, I don't know. And they weren't listening. And they, you know, or there's times when Jonas, who's our number three and, and Jane will run upstairs and they, they've been given the job of cleaning their room. And we go in and inspect it. And all they've done is shove stuff under the bed, you know, or under the dresser. And you just think, Who's in charge around here? You know, like, who, who's the, I mean, come on, what's going on? This is a little bit like the question in Psalm 2. It's like the psalmist is saying, is looking out at the world, is reading the headlines, so to speak, and saying, who's in charge around here? Have you noticed what's going on all around the world? Now, here's one of the things we have to keep in mind as we read Psalm 2. This is not a song being written by a powerful nation. This is not a song written by uh, uh, Egypt or Babylon or Syria saying, oh, we're ruling the world. Oh, how good it is to be king. You know, this is a song written by a very tiny group of people living in a very small strip of land that often found themselves being invaded as one big empire was on its way to get to the other big empire. And so Israel was like, whoops, oh, there, here come the Egyptians. Where are y'all headed? Oh, Syria, okay. And here come these, and, and they're just being pushed around. They're collateral damage. They're being shoved around the corner. Listen, to put it bluntly, Israel was not a superpower. And so you can't read Psalm 2 through modern American ears of saying, aha, God is on our side, because there's kind of a way to read this and to say, oh, God, God's on our side. Everything we do is great. Or there's a way of reading this that says, well, God's, uh, God is king, so we don't need to do anything. Neither of those fit the context for the Jewish person praying and singing Psalm 2. They were singing this as a way of saying, God, have you looked out the front door? Have you noticed what's going on with Babylon and with Assyria? And so Psalm 2 opens and it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. And they say, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The one enthroned, I mean, look at this. What a bold phrase. 
I mean, that's like the smallest kid on the playground talking smack to the big jock bully guy, you know? Like, whoa, dude, careful. Like, why are you saying this? Because they're like, we actually really believe that the one who is enthroned in heaven is God. And so they say, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord ridicules them, and then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I want you to see two things about this text. God laughs because God is enthroned. God laughs because God is enthroned. God laughs because he knows he's really in charge. I mean, imagine this, the, the, the young Jewish boy or girl, the young Jewish person praying this prayer, singing this song. They're thinking, you know what? Boy, we are being pushed around again, and there's invading armies coming here, and there's a siege against us here and there and everywhere. But if we could just look beyond what we can see with our physical eyes, if we could, like the prophet said, see with spiritual eyes, maybe we'd realize there's a God enthroned on heaven, in heaven, and he laughs. This is a little bit like what the early Christians would do in the book of Revelation. They write this poetic, prophetic glimpse when they say, look, all around us, Rome is persecuting. All around us, there's Nero and there's all of this stuff. And they said, but hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Just pull the curtain back. There's a God who sits on the throne and it's not Caesar. It's the lamb who was slain. And so Psalm 2 is a chance to say, can we get a different perspective on the world? Can we say it's not me on the throne or them on the throne? It's the one who is enthroned. And God, they get this little glimpse. It's almost comical where God, they say, there's a God. He's enthroned. And he looks at all of this and says, <laughs> are you serious? Like, really? That, that's, what you, that's what you've been cooking up? Oh, okay. All right. And then he says, he speaks to them in his anger. So God laughs because God is enthroned. And God speaks in anger. Why? Because he has installed a king and it's not them. We need to stop for a moment and just say something about this. These are phrases that are uncomfortable to us, particularly as American Christians. Anger, uh, terrified them. I don't, we know as Christians that God is love. He is not fundamentally anger. When Moses prays for a glimpse of God in Exodus and he sees God passing before him, Moses doesn't hear a voice that says, the Lord, the Lord is so mad at you. He hears the Lord, the Lord is abounding in compassion, right? And the New Testament sees this in Jesus and they say, God is love. We know that God is love. And because God is love, God gets angry. Because God is love, God gets angry. We, we, we live in a culture where we would not like to imagine love that ever gets angry. But every parent in the room knows that it's because you love your child that you get angry when someone hurts them. You get angry when they willfully do things that are going to destroy them that you didn't real that they might not have realized. And so it's love and anger are not opposites. It's not yin and yang. Love is the source of a healthy kind of anger. Okay? Now, there is a popular mode right now in America of adopting a sort of Buddhist way of seeing this. And the Buddhist way to eliminate 
suffering in the world or to eliminate anger is to try to integrate everything, to say, well, no, no, it's all part of the universe. It's all part of everything together. Everything belongs as one little whole, one piece. But when you adopt that way of thinking, you no longer have a vocabulary for naming things as wrong, as evil. On the flip side, if you recognize that some things are destructive, then you will have anger if you have any sort of love. Does that make sense? So we try to go this Buddhist thing, like, I don't want to have anger, therefore I'm going to have peace by just saying that we're all part of the one world soul together. So, but that doesn't quite work. Because then you've, you've not just lost, lost anger, you've also lost love. Right? You haven't just lost anger, you've actually lost love. A psychologist named Paul Ekman He's one of the leading psychologists on emotions. He studied emotions for 40 years, and we know he's brilliant because he was the science consultant behind the movie Inside Out. So we know this guy's a genius, like, hands down. If he does anything else, nothing else, and he's like, he's a genius, okay? <laughs> and Ekman studied emotions for 40 years, and he says, anger is an emotion when something that you care about is being obstructed or damaged. That means that anger is not automatically wrong. In fact, anger, as we've already said, is a function of love. And so when it says in the psalm that God speaks in anger because he has installed his king, this is God saying, I know what is truly good for the world that I care about. And that's my reign. It's my rule. My rule is the ultimate good for the world that I made and that I love. And any other false king that tries to say, no, 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 do it this way. No, 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 follow me. No, no, do it this way. No, let me be in charge. Any other false king is going to lead you into ruin. And so God says, enough. The king in heaven says, no, don't believe that lie. Don't believe that lie. And so right away, when you put Psalm 1 next to Psalm 2, you start to understand that you cannot walk in God's way without living under God's reign. You cannot walk in, there's no such thing as accessing God's wisdom without surrendering to God's rule. You can't. I, it's very popular today to speak of God in nebulous terms as a wisdom, a light, a love, an enlightenment. A couple days ago on Thursday, I was at a panel at UCCS that was hosted by crew. And it was about 70 kids, and it was a great time. And so questions that they were promoting it on campus to say, if anyone has a question that you would ask God, <laughs> bring it to this meeting, and our panel will respond. I was thinking, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> so that's not dangerous territory, you know. And I realize how easy it is to speak of spirituality and how difficult it is to speak of Jesus. How easy it is to speak of spiritual enlightenment and how difficult it is to speak of the gospel. But see, Psalm 1, when you set it right next to Psalm 2, this is what you see. You don't get the wisdom and the way of Psalm 1 without the rule of Psalm 2. 
You don't get to say, oh, God, I just see God is not a force. God is not a light. God is not enlightenment. God is not just wisdom in, in a nebulous way. God is a king. And that's what Psalm 2 says. And that's where we begin to feel a little bit squirmy. Like, oh, no. I felt much better about things when we could talk about spirituality and enlightenment and God as the highest being that we all aspire to be more like. And Psalm 2 says, no, that's, there's truth to that. But you don't get there without recognizing that he is king. King. Now watch what the New Testament does with Psalm 2. The New Testament, the followers of Jesus quote this psalm at a very early point in the church's development. It happens in Acts 4. In Acts 4, it says after they were released. So they were just, they just got the snot beat out of them. They just got told to stop preaching about Jesus. And it says after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they said, oh, they're right. We better stop being troublemakers. Let's just get along a little bit better. They raised their voices together to God and said, master. I mean, just stop right there for a minute. When was the last time you prayed and addressed God as master? I mean, this is a long way from tiny little baby Jesus. Master. I mean, this is whoa. Right away. Say, hey, just so so you're clear, we know that we're under your reign. Master, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant. And then what do they start to quote? Psalm 2, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah, end quote, right? That's verse 1. And they don't stop there. They're like, let's go ahead and name names. Let's go ahead and say who these rulers are. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, I think that covers it, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Wow. That's bold. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned Oprah in a sermon and I get an email. Why'd you have to mention names, you know? Just my brother. The early Christians were like, let's just say it. It was Herod. It was Pilate. It was the Gentiles. It was all of Israel. We all plotted together. It's us, you know. Like, woo, okay. They just named it. Wow, wow, you you went there. It was a device in the New Testament to name an excerpt from the Old Testament, knowing that people could fill in the rest, right? Right? So, so if you were a kid that grew up memorizing and praying and singing Psalm 2, when Peter and the, the apostles start quoting Psalm 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage and conspire against the Lord and against his anointed, what are you going to fulfill in in your, in your mind? But the one who is enthroned in heaven laughs. And this is how the early Christians saw it. Yes, everybody did conspire against Jesus. Yes, Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and all of us, we were all part of conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed. But, but that was Friday. And on Sunday, the one who was enthroned in heaven laughed. 
and said, <laughs> okay, you done? We finished? Good? Dead? Jesus, be raised up. And the one in heaven laughed, and Jesus was exalted up as the king over all, raised up. They say this in the early preaching of the early church. They say, the one whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Boom, mic drop. All right, that's the moment. And so they're filling in Psalm 2. This is how they read Psalm 2. We know how the nations conspired, and we know how God laughed. We know how God had the last laugh. So the preaching in the New Testament is very clear. That God became king over the world through Jesus. Now, this is a phrase that I love. N.T. Wright uses this in one of his books, How God Became King. And it's a little bit of a cheeky use of that phrase because obviously God already was king. But what he's trying to say is in the Old Testament, they were saying, Yahweh, come and be king yourself. Come and do for us what none of our earthly kings could actually do. And you remember, we've talked about this here. They're saying, come on, God, our earthly offices, they, they just can't get it right. <laughs> Boy, does that sound familiar. And they're like, God, would you just do the job yourself? And in the New Testament, they're saying, Jesus, you have. Jesus is how God became king over the whole world. Now, it's well and good for us to say amen in church. But all around in our culture today, this is a hotly contested claim. A hotly contested claim. Just recently, a former very popular pastor turned spiritual leader said, Jesus would have been mortified to discover that a religion was started in his name. <laughs> would he? When you watch the specials, and I guarantee you every Easter there's a Time Magazine cover story or PBS will re-air this where it talks about the Jesus of the Gospels and the Christ of Paul. If you've never heard it or seen anything, what they're trying to say is, the Jesus of the Gospels was this amazing, sweet, Gandhi before Gandhi kind of teacher. Just an awesome, humanitarian, wise guy, wise man. And then Paul and all the apostles, they invented Christianity. If you've never heard this before, you, you, you will. You've come across it, conversations with people. You've heard it from your college professors. You've heard it from, from all kinds of different places. It's a very common way of speaking to say, oh, Jesus was amazing. Love that guy, Jesus. So cool. What a guy. Ah, king. I don't know if he was king. I mean, I wouldn't go that far. That's not my truth. But, but, you know, but he, I think all the early Christians, they invented this stuff later in order to gain power through Rome. Have you heard that one? Christian theology was invented in order to seduce Rome and then gain power and oppress the rest of the global south. It's basically the, the shorthand version that you hear in, in, in stuff. Can I tell you a fundamental flaw with that way of thinking? you would not have heard of the Jesus of the Gospels without the preaching of the apostles. You would not have heard of Jesus of Nazareth without the preaching of the apostles. You would not know his name if not for Peter and Paul and James and John. And here's just the fact. The Gospels were written 
a long time after Paul's letters, many of Paul's letters. So think about this. Paul's preaching Jesus as the king of the world, as the Messiah, as the Lord and the Savior. Whole communities are being formed called churches in Ephesus and Rome and Galatia and all of these other cities. And then they say, you know what? We better write down these stories about Jesus. And so they write it down and it becomes the Gospels. So to pit one against the other is actually historical foolishness. Because the same community that gave you Jesus was the community formed by the preaching of Paul. Does that make sense, guys? It, it, it doesn't work to make this hard line. And this is why I'm showing you the preaching there in the book of Acts, because right there in the book of Acts, they're saying, yeah, one of our first sermons was that God made Jesus king overall. A long time ago, I was um, in another city sitting down with a, a good friend who had been on staff at a church, you know, been kind of a, you know, a, a pillar Christian. And he said to me in kind of a moment of vulnerability, he said, I, I just, I don't know about, do you think, and he said, this is going to sound funny, he said, do, do you think maybe as Christians we've sort of made too much of Jesus? <laughs> and he's like, I know, I know that sounds weird, but you know, like, what if Jesus didn't mean to sort of make these, what if Jesus was just like trying to show us a new way of living? Like he was an enlightened teacher that taught the kingdom of God, like taught the rule of God as in like the ultimate way of being human. I was like, man, I understand what you're saying. Like I understand because there are so many Christians who check all the right doctrinal boxes about who Jesus is, but then don't live anything like him. I know there's a lot of Christian culture that's like, oh, we know how to say the right things about Jesus, but actually we have no interest in living like him or loving like him or being radical. So I understand why he's saying that. I said, well, the, the, the trouble is, Jesus didn't just come to show us the way of the kingdom. He came as the king of the kingdom. And the Gospels show us over and over again, if you enter into kind of a Jewish reading, especially of Matthew, but you see it there in Luke has his own way of cueing this and Mark has his own way and John has his own way, but they're all trying to say to this, there's something about Jesus that he wasn't just pointing to the way, he wasn't just showing the way, he was the way, he wasn't just teaching the truth, he was the truth, he didn't just impart life, he is the life, he didn't just talk about the resurrection, he was the resurrection, he didn't just teach about the kingdom, he's the king of the kingdom. And that's what the Gospels do. That's what the Gospels do. So all of a sudden we have to say, God, somehow the king that he has installed is Jesus. And any other king that we try to live under will result in God saying, I'm going to speak with some anger right now. Because that king is going to destroy you. That king of ultimate happiness, or that king of, of, of sexual fulfillment, or that king of materialism, or that king, that king, all of those kings will actually ruin your life. There's only one king who gives life. So how do we live under God's reign through Jesus? How do we do this? Listen to verse 10. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. You, you heard it in the reading that we did earlier. Be wise, be warned. It's a classic little phrase in wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Be wise, be warned. Listen up, in other words. Hey, kings, judges, you find yourself with some power, listen up. 
So number one, how do we live under God's reign? Number one, by receiving, I should say, the Lord's instruction and correction. By receiving the Lord's instruction and correction. What would it look like to pray, Lord, I need your wisdom about this. Lord, how would your wisdom guide my business today? God, how would your wisdom guide my home today? God, how would your wisdom guide my approach in the community today? God, how would your wisdom guide my uh, uh, execution of the public office today? How would your wisdom guide my pursuit of a public office? How would your wisdom guide me today? See, our trap is when we think about living under God's reign, our trap is to either say God's always on my side instead of thinking about us on his reign, or to say, well, if God's got it, then I don't need to be engaged in society. And that's not what he's saying. He's like, look, there's going to be kings and judges. You're going to be engaged. You're going to have leadership. You're going to be in, in, in every sphere of human society. But can you receive the wisdom of the king as you live out your spheres of authority, your spheres of influence? It's, it's interesting because the Hebrew word in that verse for wisdom is the word sakal. And it's got the same root as the word for prosper or success. And in fact, in 1 Samuel 18, when, he's talk, when they're talking about David, they say David had more success than all of Saul's servants. And the same word there is used there, sakal. David had more sakal than all of the other servants. And then here in Psalm 2, it says, hey, you kings, gain this sakal. And so sort of in the Hebrew mind, wisdom and success are related In other words, to really succeed is to be living with God's wisdom. Take every other marker of success off. That may or may not include wealth. That may or may not include this. It may or may not include that. But when you're taking an inventory of your life, say, am I receiving instruction and correction from the wisdom of God? Because that is what it means to live successfully. Okay, secondly, verse 11 Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. The second thing that we want to say here is that we do this by serving the Lord with awe and with joy. Fearful joy and joyful fear. Somehow both kind of get together. Now, to just give you one example of this, okay? So what is it? What, What is the Lord instructing or commanding. What does King Jesus say? Well, right here in Psalm 2, verse 7, it says something about Jesus and his, and his reign. It says that, that the son, Jesus, I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. We can go on to that verse now. So, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And then there's that verse in the Gospels where it comes true. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Matthew 28, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the... Do do you see this? Psalm 2 verse 7 has been fulfilled. The nations were given under Jesus' authority. And what does Jesus turn around and do? He says to all of us as his followers, he says, okay, now you go and teach them to live under my authority. Teach them to live under my authority, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. See, this is the language of kingship and authority. 
This, the Great Commission, as Matthew 28 is called, is not Jesus saying, all the nations are mine, so make sure you get everybody to fill out the cards and check the boxes. Nothing wrong with cards and boxes. We've got cards with boxes to check. <laughs> Nothing wrong with it. But that doesn't, that's not all a king is after. A king is not just after a census of all, all the names of the people who are. The king is after people who follow his reign. And so Jesus says, Go and teach them to observe everything. Don't just, don't just make them citizens in the kingdom. Make them followers of my reign. Teach them to observe this, to obey this, to live this way. And I'm with you to the end of the age. And so this is why Acts 4 is where we were in just a moment ago. After that prayer, they prayed Psalm, t- Psalm 2. And then they go on in their prayer and they say, and now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may be protected. I mean, that would have been how I would have prayed. Protect us. You heard the threats. Oh, God. No, 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 Lord. We're going to ask you one thing. Grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. Who are these people? Who are these people? And while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Listen, can I tell you something? The boldness of the early church came from the fear of God. Came from the fear of God. Psychologists will tell us again that fear is not always a negative emotion. Fear can keep us from danger. It's kind of how we're wired with it. It's a good thing. Can be. So this whole like, you know, it may be sort of cool on advertising campaigns to say no fear, you know, but but fear is a, it's a necessary part of life. So you avoid threats and danger. The issue is not living without fear. The issue is knowing whom to fear. And Jesus said, don't fear the ones who can just destroy your body. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. See, the early church was bold, not because they eliminated all fear and they somehow pumped themselves up with enough, you know, uh, monster energy drinks or whatever. No, the early church was bold because they they knew who to really fear. Not these guys, God the king. And so when Psalm 2 says, serve the Lord with fear, it means that. It means a kind of reverential awe that says, I know who's really running this place. And in the end, my allegiance and obedience to him matters more than anything else. So let the chips fall where they may. Listen, I'm telling you, you guys, we live in, I love every opportunity we get to build bridges in the community. I think that's so hugely important. But there is a point, and every missionary in the room knows this. There is, an, there is a point where you can no longer find common ground with the culture you're trying to reach. And at some point, you're going to say things that are going to actually confront the culture that you're trying to reach. And you guys, we're not going to get away from that. We'll never avoid that. We won't win the popularity contest in the long run. We won't. Now, that doesn't mean we need to be obnoxious jerks about it. Doesn't need to mean we need to be like, oh, you know, mean spirited. Not at all. But I was thinking about this recently because I'm, I'm so in awe of certain things that are happening that are unifying and rallying the community here. I think that's so amazing. But I also had a sadness in me realizing that the church will never really be that role. Because the church doesn't just say, come one, come all, let's all be happy. The church says, come on, come on, come on. There's a king. (laughs) 
He's more generous than you thought. He's a better king than you'd be to yourself. But there's no getting around this. There's a king. And his name is Jesus. So missiologists call this the indigenizing principle and the pilgrim principle. The indigenizing principle is where you, you look for things at work in the culture, indigenous elements that you can say, oh, look at that, that speaks of Jesus. I love that. But then there's also the pilgrim principle where you're going to introduce things and say, yeah, you know, this one doesn't emerge from any human culture. This one is just purely Jesus. I got, there's no other reason this makes sense. Forgiveness, and on and on it goes. And so there is, a, there is a sense in which obeying, serving the Lord requires both awe and joy. There's joy in it, but there's awe as well. And then the third thing the psalmist says, he says in verse 12, kiss the sun, or in this translation, pay homage, or if you'd like, homage to the sun, and he, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. That's tough, isn't it? It's like, whoa, wow. And so we hear the psalmist saying that, we, that we, one of the ways we live under God's reign is by honoring the true king, by honoring the true king. Kiss the sun is uh, 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 maybe a practice that, or a, a phrase is like, what, 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 what ritual is that part of? We don't really get it. We don't really think of a kiss that symbolizes allegiance uh, in our democracy. <laughs> but there is still one remnant, one little place in our society where a kiss speaks of allegiance. It's in the wedding ceremony. When having exchanged vows, the pastor says, okay, you may now kiss your bride. And it's a way of saying your old allegiances, your old freedoms to chase whomever you were chasing ends today. And with this kiss, whether or not it's your first, with this kiss in the wedding ceremony, you're saying your allegiance is now all directed to this person. So we still get that. That's not exactly the same. But here, Yahweh, the Father, saying, I have installed my son as the king. Point all your allegiance toward him. But remember how the psalm ends. All who take refuge in him are happy. You see, guys, this is not just like, you better, you better, you better. This is God saying, I get angry when I see you squander your allegiance to things that cannot actually provide for you. I get mad when I see you give your allegiance to things that cannot fulfill you, but when you give your allegiance to the only wise and true and loving king, oh, then you're truly happy. Then you're truly happy. As Christians, we get to live this out every Sunday when we come to the table. Communion table for the early Christians was called a sacrament, and whatever else that word might mean, it comes from a patch of allegiance that a Roman soldier would have on his uniform called a sacramentum. A sacramentum was a Roman soldier's reminder that his allegiance was to Caesar and that he'd taken an oath of allegiance and fidelity to Caesar. 
And so the early Christians said, well, I mean, that's fine, I guess, but our allegiance is actually to Jesus. And so every time they came to the table, they saw it as an oath of allegiance, a way of saying, Jesus, you're the king. And let me show you just how good this king is. Paul's preaching tells us that we were treating God like his enemy. We were insistent on being enemies of God. And Paul says, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Enemies who should have been crushed by the king instead found a king who would lay down his life for us. I think it makes it joyful to pledge our allegiance to him. It makes, it makes our hearts glad to say, God, gladly give you my allegiance. So this morning, if you bow your heads and close your eyes, and as we come to the table, we're coming today to the king, the king's table, the king's feast, the king who gives us his own body and blood, Maybe this is a moment for you to say, yeah, I, I, uh, I've been ignoring the Lord's wisdom and instruction. I've kind of been living without that, ignoring it. But I need it. <laughs> I want the wisdom of the Lord in my life. And maybe you'd say, you know, I, I, uh, I haven't been serving the Lord. I've just sort of been... You know, treating Jesus like a mascot <laughs> that I think is just so awesome. <laughs> but I wouldn't say I've turned over the reins and just say, okay, I'm going to serve you. Or maybe you'd say, I, I, I don't know that I've thought fully about honoring the true king with my whole life. But it begins today. Psalm 2 is an intro. It's a beginning. Today's a beginning. Begin by saying, Lord, I give you every part. I want your instruction. I want your wisdom. I want to serve you. Turn me away from lesser fears until the holy, reverent fear of God is all that 